This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. And we want to talk today about COVID-19 versus allergies. There are some similar symptoms. We're delighted to have Dr. Curtis Johnson with us today. He serves as Medical Director of Emergency Services at Medical City North Hills. Dr. Johnson, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to be on and able to talk about health issues. You know, it's springtime, the pollen's out, people have itchy eyes, runny nose. Do sometimes the symptoms for COVID-19 and allergies overlap? Yes, they actually do, and it does make it difficult sometimes. I know I suffer from seasonal allergies, and there's a lot of times I'm like, huh, and I start having to like sit back and think about the symptoms I'm having to make sure I haven't gotten COVID. Fortunately, I haven't, but um, yeah, there's things like runny nose, congestion, sinus pressure. You can get the headache, the sore throat, um, some mild shortness of breath, and a little bit of tiredness, both with allergies and with COVID-19. But to a large extent, a lot of that is much more pronounced with uh, COVID-19, especially the shortness of breath and the tiredness. You know, if someone came to the emergency room, are there any symptoms that you might pick up on that clearly show you, hey, this is not an allergy? Yeah, there are a few that we really look for. Um, If someone comes in concerned that they have allergies, but they're suffering from things like body aches, uh, chills, or especially a fever, then GI symptoms like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, those are not things you have with allergies. Those are things you have with COVID-19. But a biggie is just basically losing your sense of taste and smell. Uh, You can get a little bit of the smell, you know, like with nasal congestion from allergies, but losing your sense of taste, just boom, that's pretty uh, unique to COVID-19. You know, in your answer, you you triggered a thought. I know we're talking about allergies and COVID-19, but Sometimes if someone comes in and they're running fever, aches and pains, they might have the flu. You know, that's a very, very good point. And we are actually testing more, I think, for the flu now. Historically, by the time you get late in the flu season, we kind of just stop testing for the flu because we go, oh, you know, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, it's going to be the flu. But yeah, the flu and COVID-19 can often, because of the body aches, the fever, the chills, all those things I said were unique to COVID-19, they can mimic the flu, except for the, again, except for that uh, loss of taste and smell. So yeah, we do see a lot of patients who we come in and we're like, oh, they're going to have COVID. And then when we test them, they turn out to have influenza. Have you seen a lot of influenza this year? I'm just curious, since people have, at least some people have been wearing masks. Well, see, that's a very good question. Um, It would depend on what you're comparing to. Last year, I guess really our first winter with uh, COVID-19, we saw maybe five cases of flu all season. It was like phenomenally low. And I attributed that to the people wearing masks. This year, we are seeing more influenza 
but not nearly like we did two years ago when we had a, a pretty bad flu season prior to COVID-19. So I'd say we're seeing a lot more than we saw last year, but not it's not a the influenza-wise, it's not a um, massive flu season like we have seen in the past. I think the masks work. They work a really. They work for COVID nineteen, and they especially work for influenza. Yeah, that's a great point you're making, especially related to the mask. So let me ask you this: Could someone present at the emergency room, test positive for COVID nineteen, and still have allergies at the same time? Oh, absolutely. That's not uncommon. Uh, people who have severe allergies. Um, will have severe allergies regardless of whether they get COVID. So if the allergy pollen count and all is high, they can get COVID and still have allergies. So they're, the two are not mutually exclusive. Um, in fact, I, for me personally, you know, historically I had always, like I said, I have allergies. I would always taken my allergy medicines just if I really needed them, but I've pretty religiously taken them since the start of COVID just so I could try to eliminate the allergy symptoms and better detect if I were starting to have COVID-like symptoms. When a person is having symptoms and it's what they think seasonal allergies, at what point should they really consult a medical professional? I would say definitely if they're starting to suffer from shortness of breath or difficulty breathing, if they feel like they can't catch their breath, if they start having uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea to the point where they're having trouble keeping down fluids or they're feeling weak from dehydration, those type of symptoms, absolutely, you need to come in and be evaluated because regardless of what's causing that, those things will need to be addressed. If you're not, you know, if you can't get your breath and you're short of breath, whether it's COVID-19 or pneumonia or whatever it is, you need to be seen, even if it turned out to be something like seasonal allergy that were exacerbating an asthma. So I'd say those would be the key things, shortness of breath, trouble breathing, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, those type things. And if it's going to the point of dehydration and weakness, especially. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day that felt like their allergies were acting up, but just to be safe, they went and got tested for COVID. They were negative. Then about 24 to 36 hours later, they were feeling worse. They went back and they tested positive. Do you see that happen? Um, not as much with the tests we do in the emergency department, but seeing those patients, yes, because one, the home tests are, if you're positive with a home test, then you are positive, but because both you're doing them yourself and trust me, doing a COVID swab, I've done it on myself a couple of times, it is not a pleasant thing. So you tend to not get a good sample. So home tests especially will be less likely to, you know, they're more likely for it to miss the uh, COVID if you have it, especially early on. And the rapid test, the ones, oh, you know, take a COVID test and you'll get the results back in uh, 15 minutes, 30 minutes. Those are done by antigen and they're uh, not as precise. They, you know, it requires a much heavier load of COVID in your system in order to test positive. The ones that they do at places where they say, okay, do it and we'll have your results tomorrow, like what we do in the hospital for our, uh, are called PCR tests. 
those they send to a lab, they amplify the DNA, and they can detect minute amounts of COVID. So you are more likely to be uh, positive. You're more. It's very, very unlikely for them to miss a positive result. The flip side of that is also true that if you come back positive on a home test, then you probably are pretty infectious. The ones where you hear about people testing positive for weeks, months after, are typically the PCR where it can detect a much lower amount of virus. And the people who are positive on PCR are not always um, 100% infectious at that point. They maybe have recovered a few weeks after the virus. This is Dr. Curtis Johnson. He's Director of Emergency Services at Medical City North Hills. And when we come back, if you don't want to get sick during this allergy season or during cold and flu season, which we're still in, stay tuned because we're going to tell you how to do it next on the Human Side of Healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Curtis Johnson. He's the medical director of emergency services at Medical City North Hills. It is springtime in Texas with all the storms we had this past week, and pollen is out. Some of us feel our allergy symptoms more than others, and sometimes they could even borderline on COVID-19-like symptoms. So how do we tell the difference? That's what we're talking about. Plus, coming up, how we can stay well, even during cold, flu, and allergy season. Steve? You know, I want to ask you another question. You know, people are not wearing masks probably as diligently as they did last year. And I know we've had a somewhat moderate flu season. I was talking to a friend that said, hey, if flu isn't bad this year, I'm just going to skip the flu shot. What do you think about that? Oh, I would strongly urge against that. Um, Like I said, people are still getting the flu, just like people who are trying not to get uh, COVID get covid you know, I mean, my, for example, my son, you know, he wears a mask everywhere he goes and got vaccinated. And, you know, he still got a mild case of COVID. And the same thing with the flu. Despite your best efforts, you can get the flu. And in a time with another virus running around that will attack someone with a weakened immune system, I would not give it any chance. I would get the flu shot because that protection against influenza is your safety net. You know, you wear your mask, but you have one slip up. Well, there the vaccine is that kept you from getting the flu. So I would not advise skipping the flu shot, not in any way. Dr. Johnson, this is Thomas. Let me ask you this. Why do you wear a mask in the hospital? I wear a mask in the hospital for two reasons. One is to uh, protect myself when I'm in contact with people who uh, may have infectious diseases, be it the flu, be it COVID. I wear a mask in the hospital for that because often my patients can't, especially those who are having trouble breathing. I'm having to apply oxygen to, so that's the only protection is for me to be wearing a mask. And the other is because I'm exposed to people who are um, ill on a daily basis, I wear a mask to protect my other patients from me. Like I said, I have allergies, and if I had runny nose or something, I might be like, well, hmm, is it allergies or is it COVID? So I wear a mask all the time, so I'm not a risk to my patients as well as protecting myself from them. So it's a twofold thing. I wear a mask to protect the patient, my patients from me so I don't spread it to people who either 
um, or have a weakened immune system from some other reason, you'll a heart issue or a lung issue that's unrelated to COVID. Okay, let's play around here for a second. Let's imagine that there never was any COVID. All we're dealing with are colds, flu, allergy right now. Against those, like we used to do, does the mask really work, do you think? Yes, um, I think that the mask works for even more so for preventing people from getting the cold and flu. Um, So, yeah, I think the mask works uh, to help you prevent from all those things as well. And I mean, you're coming from the perspective of somebody who does this many days a month. I don't know how many days a month you work, but you you've done this for years, for decades. You've been in the medical profession. You Mm -hmm. see that that mask makes a difference. Yes, sir. Now let's bring COVID back into the picture (laughs) because it looks like now that we're going to, at least until something else happens, live with it as an endemic. In other words, it's just like a cold or flu or something. It's out there and we're just going to have to work with it. How does the mask come into play now? Uh, From my perspective, I, I go from wearing the mask when I'm in direct contact with patients, like when I'm on shift to anytime I'm in the hospital, I wear the mask for the same reasons, to protect myself from the asymptomatic people who may not realize they have it, as well as to protect people from me in case I have it asymptomatically. Um, And yeah, you're right, it probably is endemic now, so I'm hoping maybe it'll at least settle into a season so we have some times that it's not prevalent, but yeah, I see the mask, being necessary in the hospital for the foreseeable future for that reason, because the risk of what COVID can do is substantial. Even people with uh, good immune systems, I've taken care of many people who ended up in the hospital with pneumonia uh, who had otherwise healthy immune systems due to COVID. So help me if there's a flaw in my logic here. I'll explain to you what I'm doing personally. I don't want to get COVID, haven't gotten it, still don't want it. And I use my voice as my profession. So I don't want a cold. I don't even want the allergies. So to me, when I'm going out in public, the mask has become a definition of best defense that I can do when I'm out in public, go to the grocery store, go do whatever. Let's get back to our lives. But I'm going to choose to wear a mask when I'm out in public because I don't want what the hundred people I might be around have. Is that a flawed logic? No, sir. That is a very, very good logic. You, Like you said, you, you're in a profession where, um, you know, kind of on the same line with me, you're in a profession where you have to remain healthy and you, in your case, have to maintain your voice at peak level. So wearing the mask is the best defense you're going to have to prevent all the respiratory viruses because they all work by inhalation. So by wearing the mask when you're indoors, wearing the mask when you're around people. I mean, I, I wear it when I go to my son's soccer games, if I'm sitting uh, near anybody, even though it's outdoors. And that is the best defense you have. And it does kind of, like you said, it shows that, you know, if it's important to you to um, maintain your voice, then you do what you need to do to maintain it. And that's, a very good logic. I agree with everything you said. Okay. Now, let me ask you kind of a practical day-to-day question, because it seems like we are transitioning from COVID pandemic to COVID endemic. We're living with it. 
So let's say that we choose to wear a mask or at least have a mask with us while we're out running our daily errands. We're not so concerned as we were a year and a half ago, but we still want to prevent these various things. What then is the best mask for that? If you can tolerate it, the best mask is either a KN95 or an N95. They're basically equivalent level masks, but they do, they are smaller particle masks. So there can be some degree of drag when you're breathing if you're not used to them. In that matter, wearing a um, surgical mask um, is your best option um, if you have difficulty with the drag of, you know, inhalating with a KN95. But the safest thing is a KN95 or a N95 mask that's fitted to your uh, face. That's what, when we were at the height of this most recent pandemic, that's what I wore both outside of the hospital and in the hospital was a KN95. So if you were going to fly on an airplane, that you wouldn't use just Oh, if I was flying on an airplane, I'd wear a pair of eye protection and I'd wear a KN95. Absolutely. Because you're in an enclosed space where anybody on that plane could be uh, who has any type of respiratory issue could be an issue for you. So I would wear KN95 from the time I walked into the airport until I was back out of the airport when I landed. Hmm, eye protection. Now that's interesting. What would you recommend there? Um, eye protection, it can be just as simple as um, regular glasses, sunglasses. The um, It's more for the direct because if someone coughs within a, you know, 10, 15 feet of you, those particles can settle in the mucous membranes of your eye. And if you've ever cried and you notice your nose started running when you cried, that's because your tear ducts drain into your nose. So if you got in something and someone sneezed or coughed and it got into your eye, your tears would wash it down into your nose, which would bypass the mask's effectiveness. So um, eye protection when you're in direct contact with someone to prevent viruses or things from getting into your eyes where they can then travel into your nose. And that's something interesting I hadn't thought about. I relaxed wearing a face shield, and I was, because... I heard some comments and people were saying, well, yeah, but if somebody sneezes, it just goes right up under there. The um, particulates that you're going to be at risk from with things like flu, COVID, are going to be heavier droplet particles. So they're going to travel more in a straight line. They're not going to be as, um, they're not aerosolized, so to speak. When um, the aerosolized, which we deal with in the hospital, like if we're uh, intubating somebody, putting a tube down to breathe for them. Those type of times when it's aerosolized, yes, that is an issue. So we have different rules in the hospital for when we're dealing with aerosolizing issues. But if it's just out in the world with cough sneezes, those typically are in water pro- particles that are, or droplet particles that are heavier and are less likely to go around a face shield. So the, a face shield is pretty good protection in those situations. Now, the one caveat is if you are around somebody who is doing a breathing treatment with like a nebulizer machine, that is a aerosolizing procedure. So that is something I would be uh, more cautious about. But still, I mean, if there's no way to make your face airtight, so, or at least not that's uh, reasonable for the public. So a KN95 and glasses or face shield is still your best protection. We've been talking with Dr. Curtis Johnson. He's the Medical Director of Emergency Services at Medical City North Hills. Great tips on staying well this spring. 
Now, when we come back, we're going to tackle a topic that has been tough for a lot of us these past two years. How do we process grief when we lose someone we love? That's next on the Human Side of Healthcare. Welcome back to the Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome to the Human Side of Healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. You know, we're going to be talking about palliative care, and we're delighted that we have with us Flora Liel, who's a palliative care psychologist at Parkland Health and Hospital System. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me today. You know, I know we're going to talk about a difficult topic, but it's one that we do have to deal with, and that's learning to live with the loss of a loved one. So how do you describe the different types of grief that people experience? Well, anytime that there's a loss in our lives, um, we experience grief, which is basically like feelings of sadness after we lose um, either a role or a person or something that's changed in our lives. And most of us deal with grief um, pretty normally and naturally. And what that looks like is we start to feel better after about a year or two of, of that loss. But sometimes we do experience something called complex or complicated grief, which is when the those symptoms don't tend to ease up and then they start affecting us like with our everyday life. Um, so that is most of the time when people do um, look for mental health services and they start asking um, for professional help to kind of deal with the loss. Um, and then in palliative care, since we work with people at end of life, we also deal with something called anticipatory grief. And that is when you are grieving someone who's still alive and here with us even now. Um, and also precipitory grief, which is when you're anticipating your own death. I know there are reactions that are shown when people are grieving. What would you say some of those common reactions are? Well, um, most of the time, people who are grieving will feel sadness, of course, um, for the loss of their loved one or the loss that they're experiencing, whatever it may be. Um, Also, some people experience anger about why this is happening um, or even numbness. Some people describe feeling like they can't feel anything at all, um, which sometimes comes along with shock, um, which is when it's hard to believe that this is happening. It may feel unreal, almost like you're in a dreamlike state. And anxiety is something that's pretty typical also when we're grieving. Um, We may start to feel fear that a person can be here one minute and then they're gone the next. And it's uh, especially when it's an unexpected death, that may be something that the person experiences. You know, sometimes you hear tragedies like where a student is killed in a car accident or unfortunately if there's an active shooter at a school and you hear that grief counselors are going to be on campus immediately to work with the students. What are some of the things they'd be doing? So when a grief counselor um, works with somebody, they're really there to help them deal with their acute grief, which is the experience that they're having right directly uh, after um, any kind of tragic event. And basically, they'll be listening to what uh, they are feeling and helping them to kind of process and understand what it means for them and their lives. 
and also to give them resources and help them to, to have a place to go or someone to talk to if their grief um, doesn't end up um, resolving in a normal amount of time or they end up having um, side effects or symptoms related to their experience. Um, so basically, it's really having someone there to talk to in the moment um, to help them to process that event so it's less likely to become problematic in the future. You know, you mentioned sometimes people even describe their grief as they are numb. In your opinion, are there physical symptoms of grief where it really impacts you physically? Absolutely. Um, I would say that the majority of us, when we're experiencing grief, will have physical manifestations, um, whether that be like feeling very fatigued and tired or um, GI issues tend to come up quite frequently, like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, um, changes in appetite. Sometimes after a loss, people don't really feel like eating very much um, and tend to lose weight after that. Um, changes in sleep patterns also can be very, um, very normal at that time. Um, some people, like I mentioned earlier, Earlier, like feel like they're in a dreamlike state and it's really hard to kind of keep up with your regular routines. Um, and that also typically gets better with time. Um, but it is um, a normal response to grief. Also having uh, headaches or any type of pain. Um, for people who have pain issues already prior to a grief experience, they may even experience um, an exacerbation of pain because now they are dealing um, with the stress related to the grief on top of already like their organic type of issue that they have. You know, for people that have lost a loved one, are there any recommended actions they could take to help cope with their feelings of grief? Absolutely. That is such an important thing to think about. First of all, I would highly recommend that if you're dealing with grief, that you take care of your very basic needs. And what that looks like is eating three healthy meals a day, making sure that you're drinking water and trying to stick to a routine, you know, take your medications and try to sleep the best that you can. If your basic needs are being taken care of, you are less likely to experience, you know, the negative kind of side effects, um, if you would call it, of grief. You also want to surround yourself with support and people who love you. Um, being around other people who also are sharing in your grief can be helpful, like family or friends um, of the person that you have lost. And you also want to talk about it. Um, a lot of people tend to kind of keep grief to themselves and they are afraid of maybe being a burden to someone. But being around those people can be really helpful during those times. You know, we're all at different stages of life. How do you deal with children, especially when they're dealing with grief? Yeah, you know, children tend to deal with grief a little bit different than adults. And also we have to kind of keep in mind that their life experiences are different from ours as adults. Um, but the first thing would be when you talk to a child about death, you want to speak in really concrete terms and actually say the word dead, like grandma or grandfather are dead. Um, children, you know, need to hear those words in order to understand what's really happening. But the best thing that anyone can can do to be there for their child is to be open and honest with them. Have an open 
door policy at home where you tell your children, hey, if you have questions or concerns, you know, come talk to me and I'll answer your questions. Um, it's very important that we don't lie to the children about what's happening because that can cause confusion in the future. And also I would recommend getting your child some books, um, you know, going to your local library, finding some information about death that is for the age of the child that's going through this and helping explain things that way. Many people obviously keep pictures of their loved ones and it helps them remember how much they loved and had that person in their life. Is it okay? Is it normal if you keep things like that was grandma's favorite chair and I want to keep that chair with me and no matter where you move, you find a place in your home to put that chair. Are those kind of actions okay? You know, Steve, I think that is a beautiful way of honoring the person who is deceased. And honoring the person who has passed away is very important and could set a really great model for, you know, grief and how to handle that um, in a child. Um, so it would be really wonderful to do that and to explain the meaning of it. David Kessler um, is an author and he also um, is a very well-known person in the grief community. And he wrote a book um, that that's called Finding Meaning in Grief. Um, and actually, it's called The Six Stages of Grief. My Sorry about that. And he uh, talks about how finding meaning in the death of a loved one and after their death is so important. And so having that chair, having those pictures and finding meaning in those things is a great way to honor them and a great way um, to cope with your grief. Do some people handle grief differently? For example, I knew an individual once who lost a parent that he was really close to, and he almost like shut down and bottled it up. And then about 12 months later is when he really broke down and grieved. Do those kind of time differences happen in grief? Absolutely. We all grieve very differently from one another and in different ways. Um, so it isn't uncommon that some people will grieve, for example, through tears and others will grieve through anger. And then, you know, slowly it starts kind of shifting and changing. So, yes, it is very common for that to happen. Now, when it becomes problematic is when our grief is getting the, in the way of us living our daily life. And when it's interfering with our relationships or, for example, um, you may be retrieving um, from things that you usually love to do or people you like to spend time with. And that's when it, uh, it becomes a problem. But other than that, yes, everyone grieves differently and there is no right or wrong way to do that. You know, you mentioned in your, in your answer something very important. When it starts interfering with your life and when the grief is really overwhelming you, what should you do for help and where should you seek help? Well, the most important thing I would say is start off with seeking support from your your support group, um, which can look like maybe friends or family or maybe your church members, um, people that love you and who are around you. Now, if you look for help through them and it just doesn't seem to be getting any better, I would recommend um, looking for a grief therapist. And you can use um, a website like psychologytoday.com 
where you can actually look for therapists there and that meet the criteria that you're looking for. Or you can go to grief.com that has great resources available and there's um, information about support groups where you can go and talk to somebody about um, what you're going through. Dr. Flor Leal from Parkland Health and Hospital System on how we process grief when we lose a loved one. We're going to continue this important conversation next on the human side of healthcare. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Floor Leal. She's a palliative care psychologist at Parkland Health and Hospital System. You know, it's hard to find anybody these last two years who has not lost somebody close to them, either through COVID-19, normal aging process, accidents. It seems like so many of us have been touched, and we have to grieve properly when that happens. Here's Steve continuing the conversation. You know, Dr. Leal, Some people celebrate the life of an individual. I have a friend whose father lived to be 93 years of age. His father passed, and it was beautiful the way they celebrated the good life of his father. But then you see parents lose a child early in their lives. That's a different type of grief, wouldn't you say? You know, um, what you're bringing up there is something that is a risk factor for complex and complicated grief, which is trauma. And also the fact that it was a child. Losing a child makes you more vulnerable to having a very complicated grief because, as we know, naturally, children are not supposed to die when they're young. That is not something that we think about. It's not something that, you know, we are expecting. Um, sometimes, of course, if the child has a chronic illness, we kind of have, uh, you know, a moment to kind of prepare uh, mentally for that loss. But a lot of times that's not what happens. Um, And of course, that's going to make it a lot more difficult to process and to understand um, why these things have happened and what it means for our lives now. That's exactly where, you know, a professional comes in and helps people to kind of go through these moments, go through the narrative of their traumas um, to get better. Dr. Leal, this is Thomas. I've got a couple of questions for you. You know, sure. I'm just thinking over the last two years, we've had this overhanging reality that at any given moment, we could lose somebody close to us who we love. Has that added to this process? Because it's not a closure like you've been talking about with Steve. This becomes an overhang. It's always there. Absolutely. You know, with the pandemic and the traumatic losses that so many of us are experiencing, um, there is a a greater chance that the person who is living through these losses will um, experience complex or complicated grief. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, you know, that is when we're just not moving forward from our grief. We are feeling kind of stuck. And that's because a lot of times, you know, with the pandemic, we haven't had the opportunity to say goodbye. You know, we've experienced traumas, not being able to go into hospital rooms, not being able, you know, to show the support or say the 
words that we've wanted to say. So it creates a lot of dilemmas of, you know, people experiencing a lot of what if type of statements. What if, you know, this could have been different? What if I am the person who, you know, gave the person um, this illness? You know, there's a lot of very complex issues going on. And yes, I do believe that this pandemic has added to another type of crisis, which is more of the mental health crisis that's happening in our country right now and in our world, um, where a lot of us are experiencing traumas and need professional help to kind of cope and deal with those things. Is there a subtle grief going on in our culture of grieving what we lost, which is life prior to 2020? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I I believe that there is a reason that mental health right now has their own crises and people are seeking services at such an abundant rate. And that is because we all as a society are grieving. We are grieving life prior to the pandemic. And there's a lot of uncertainty that we're all going through and wondering, will life ever be the same again? You know, what is to come for us and what does it mean for the way that we connect with other people, the way that we work, you know, even intimate relationships have changed. So absolutely, there is a lot of grief going on. And the earlier we're able to recognize it and see it as grief, the better it is going to be for us because we can look for the help that we need. Absolutely. You know, there's another dynamic going on, and that is younger people are dying suddenly. We've been seeing it for some time now. And I think young people are asking the question, what in the world is going on here? And of course, this is that more shocking, acute grief you were talking about. How would you answer these young people? You know, that is such a complicated dilemma because they are experiencing something that organically and naturally should not be happening. Um, You know, we have an idea of like, this is kind of like the lifespan that we all have. And when people start dying earlier on, it just doesn't make sense to a lot of people, especially to, you know, adolescents and and children growing up during these times. Um, And that's you know, that's something that each individual will need to gain support from their loved ones on. You know, there really isn't an answer of this is why it's happening. It's more of this is what has happened and how are we going to cope with it now that it has. You know, what I what I also would say is that if people have spiritual beliefs and if they have um, religious beliefs to turn to at this time, that is a great place also to seek meaning and understanding of all these things that are happening, because there is a lot of existential types of questions that that um, the pandemic is bringing up and the loss of so many people um, unexpectedly passing away. Um, so I, I do recommend that that if they do have a spiritual belief or religious faith that they can practice, that they also turn to meaning from that source. I'm glad you mentioned that. We had a segment on not too long ago where that was also referenced of going back to that which in which you believe that you can hold to and stay right there through the storm. Absolutely. You know, I've asked you a series of questions, but for our listeners, What message would you like to convey to them that maybe it's a question you want to answer that I haven't asked? 
Well, one of the things that concerns me and that I hear quite a bit from people who are seeking uh, grief therapy is that they believe that there is a right or a wrong way of coping with grief. And that's just not the case. Um, grief can look very different for everyone. So um, it's important that we don't judge other people when they're grieving in a way that may look different from ours. And also recognizing that there isn't a sequential order to grief. You know, a lot of us have heard of, you know, the different stages of grief by Kubler-Ross, which are like denial and anger and bargaining, depression and acceptance. But a lot of people don't realize that those stages are not sequential and we don't have to go um, from one to the next to the next. Um, we will in our grief jump around from different emotions from day to day, from moment to moment, and we will experience triggers to our grief. Maybe you'll run into someone who reminds you of your loved one or you visit a place that you used to frequent with your loved one. And in that moment, you may feel a very profound sadness and, you know, and experience a lot of grief in that moment. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're taking a step backwards. It just means that you love that person and you are missing them in that moment. That was a fantastic answer. You know, I will ask one final question. Are there any myths out there or just things that aren't true related to grieving? Absolutely. You know, the one that I think of um, very frequently is that people feel that the purpose of grieving is to move on. And really, that is just not the case. You know, when we grieve, um, it's basically like we're experiencing the love that we had for that person. And of course, none of us would want to move on from loving someone. Really, the goal of grieving is to heal, to feel in a place where you can integrate that loss that you've experienced into your life and find meaning in it, um, which is exactly what I was referring to um, when I mentioned, you know, finding meaning in the, the death of a loved one. Um, it's so important that we do that and that we include that in our journey. Some excellent thoughts and comments from Dr. Flora Leal from Parkland Health and Hospital System, palliative care psychologist. Steve? What a great show, great guest. You know, we're seeing a moderate uptick in the flu, so it's not too late to get that flu shot. And if you're in a large crowd, you still may want to wear a mask. Thanks for being with us today, and join us next week on the Human Side of Healthcare.